Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions, and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, I'm really excited to have healthcare technology executive Hal Andrews as our guest. After working as an M&A attorney in the early 90s, Hal became active in the Nashville early stage healthcare scene in the mid-90s, and never stopped. After successful stints at a number of healthcare services startups into the mid-2000s, Hal moved into the data analytics space in the late 2000s, where he continues to focus his efforts. Since 2017, Hal has served as CEO of Trilliant, a data engineering and predictive analytics company focused on helping healthcare providers leverage evidence-based insights so they can do a better job of investing in the right growth initiatives. During our conversation, we dive into the impact the internet and distributed computing has had and continues to have on healthcare delivery the way providers are adjusting to the increasing consumerization of healthcare, and why he is cautiously optimistic about the ability of predictive analytics to make healthcare better. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in addition to his day job, Hal also happens to be one of my closest friends, and I am both grateful for his friendship and his willingness to share his insights with us today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hal Andrews. Hey, Hal, uh, it's good to see you again. Hey, before we get into the meat of the discussion, uh, how about we start with you giving us, you know, an example of the most interesting use of technology or a hack in healthcare that you've seen or heard about from clients or colleagues, or even in your own personal experience over the last few years. There's been a lot of crazy things that have happened. So figure you might've had a, a first row seat to something um, that was surprising or interesting. Well, I think the the biggest thing has just been distributed computing, which uh, I guess, you know, started more than a few years ago, but I think the my crew tells me that it was really the the Netflix prize in 2006 that got people going on on the power of distributed computing, and I think that in a nutshell is is everything. You know, I think there's a lot of talk about big data out there and about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and my guys assure me that the data science is actually the easy part and the data engineering is the hard part. Yeah, and I think. You know, the, the thing certainly for this century is being able to do distributed computing at scale. So maybe maybe the biggest innovation is uh, what Databricks has done uh, and, and Spark and allowing you to process massive amounts of data at speed. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so, you know, to get us started, I, I always like to kind of start with some sort of a warm up. I mean, back in the the days when no one was traveling, I was like, so where are you? You know, have you gone anywhere? You know, I, I don't need to ask those dumb questions anymore because uh, even Joe Biden said that, that the pandemic is over, even though I, I know there's a lot of people walking that back. I mean, obviously COVID is still around, but, you know, we, we sort of lost what the definition of pandemic means, not to not to get weird about it. But um, to help us kind of get started uh, and, and for the audience's sake, Hal and I are friends. We've known each other for a good while. So I already know your resume. But if you could just give us give us kind of a thumbnail sketch on your background and sort of, again, as we've joked before, we've both had a lot of jobs. So you don't have to go line by line on the resume, but kind of walk us up to and, and maybe emphasize a little bit of where you are today. 
Well, I'll, I'll give you two versions. One is my wife's version. Uh, we will be married 25 years in November, and she said that I've had 13 jobs. And I asked her if she went to yoga and played tennis today, and she said yes. I said, okay, don't worry about it. Um, I started as a lawyer. So I started as a lawyer in the early 90s in Nashville. I thought that I was going to be a music business attorney because I had grown up in the music business. And the law firm that I got to represented HCA and Surgical Care Affiliates and FICOR. And they said, that's great. You can do that at night. Uh, but during the day, you're going to do mergers and acquisitions for healthcare companies. Stuff that people pay us to do. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and that's what we're going to pay you to do. Right. <laughs> and so I said, great. And so for three years, I, I chased the music business at night and, and did hospital M&A during the day. And in 95, I picked a guy who nobody's ever heard of named Daryl Dodd. And I laughed at this guy whose mixtape I heard for a song called Indian Outlaw and said, Tim McGraw is never going to make it just because he's the son of a major league baseball player, which is how I got in the healthcare business. So I worked in healthcare services startups from 96 to 2007. And then in 2007, took over a small data analytics company and we turned it around and that's where we started building the crew that um, is still around today. So this is our fifth time in healthcare analytics or technology. And at this point, the crew is about 25 people who've been at, been along for at least two of the journeys. A couple of people have been along for as many as four. So 2007 to today, it's really been uh, clinical data and strategy data for healthcare. And that's, you know, again, as I was preparing for this conversation and thinking about it again, you and I have known each other for a good while and I had a, you had a pretty good sense of your career, but I hadn't really thought about it in maybe meta terms or, or not that there's a thematic, you know, I mean, not that our careers necessarily have a theme. I mean, I know mine doesn't, I, I've been trying to figure out, you know, if you were to ask my wife, you'd get probably the same sorts of answers. I don't know what the hell he does. Uh, he seems to be figuring something out. So that's, and I guess that's really all you can ask for. But um, I was thinking about your, your career path. And, and again, as someone who's been in technology in a totally different way for a long time, it, it seems to me that when, when I think about your career, there's sort of three parts, right? There's the law part, which was more the entree, you know, that, that was an early part then healthcare services, then really data analytics in the healthcare, you know, applied data analytics in the healthcare space. It feels like that, that arc sort of not, not the law part, maybe that, because if you're going to work in a regulated industry, it helps to understand the law. Cause I mean, regulation is written by lawyers. So yes. from that standpoint, um, and, and 22 year olds who just graduated <laughs> from college. Well, right. Both of both are dangerous in their own ways. So, um, but it seems your career path has tracked, what I'd call the opportunity space created by connectivity and data processing, those two revolutions that have happened really over the past 20 or 30 years, even goes back really into the late 70s, early 80s, but certainly in the 90s forward. Um, so let's call that the, you know, the internet plus mobility plus cloud sort of revolution that we've seen. I mean, is that a fair characterization when you think about your career arc? I, I think it is. In, and it's it's not a way that I have ever thought about it in terms of what I was doing back to your your comment about, you know, what what are you doing in your career? 
for me, it's always been to follow the muse. And sometimes the muse takes you to places where um, things aren't really proven out uh, or fully developed. And so if we go back all the way to 96, the, the first services company I went to was developing ambulatory surgery centers in very rural parts of the U.S., places that people have never been or heard of, uh, like Wartburg, Tennessee, and Defuniac Springs, Florida. Uh, now, some of them we, we got right. When we got to Cedar Park, Texas in 97, there was one doctor in Cedar Park, Texas, and now there are two hospitals as Austin has just grown over the top of it. Right, yeah. But in trying to deliver care to rural areas, we were relying on technology to do that uh, because you couldn't meet the staffing requirements for specialists. Right. So for instance, you, you couldn't get a radiologist to go to Wartburg, Tennessee. And so you had to figure out how to get uh, a scan back to Nashville for a board certified radiologist to read it. And I mean, in the early days, we were moving CTs and MRs over phone lines. And sometimes it made it all the way through and sometimes, sometimes it didn't. didn't. Yeah. And uh, dial up internet was hard enough, but dial up MRI scan is is super hard. Yeah. And that, that's interesting because, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, again, my career and yours are totally different, but there are parallels in the early days of what um, we were trying to do financial planning on the internet and just trying to figure out how to gather information and get it, you know, from the person to the, to, to the system to be able to, uh, to analyze it was along the lines of what you just said, which was broad. This is, and this is, you know, early 2000s. So we're, we're already, you know, pretty significantly, you know, quite a bit of, quite a bit of progress in terms of, I'll call it broadband. It wasn't broadband yet, but in terms of capacity, right. Bandwidth, um, you know, availability for, for folks. And even then it was, I mean, it, you know, it was a nightmare like to just to be able for things to actually successfully, um, you know, complete. And that's something, I mean, literally the young folks who work for you and me can't even understand that. Like that's, that's hard for them to even imagine. Like you, you say things about, you know, waiting for a web page to load and they don't know what you're talking about. They just assume it was broken. It's like, no, no, that's, that's actually how it worked. And so, you know, that, that watching that change. So you've had, you've had sort of this really interesting perspective when you think about these core technologies. Um, what are, if you can, if you can kind of take that late nineties to early, we'll call it 2010, kind of that range. That's a big change in what was, a, you know, what core technologies could do for a healthcare company, for anybody, really a media company, uh, a manufacturing company, didn't really make any difference, right? These were, these were fundamental technologies that could be applied in a bunch of different ways. What are some of the impacts? Can you think of, I mean, I know you can think of a lot, but can you, can you give me a couple of examples, maybe both good and bad of some of the impacts you witnessed on the healthcare industry from these changes really in connectivity and data, you know, the ability to process data at a, in a distributed fashion, because there were already big mainframes, people could process data, but it had to be on site right there. So really distributed data capability and connectivity, and maybe a couple, maybe some, maybe some, uh, you know, some impacts from that, that you, that you were seeing. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about technology and healthcare is that you can, you can often see it at the individual patient level. And so, you know, back in the 90s, from sort of 96 to 2000, um, at, at the company that was doing the surgery centers and then following that with the company that was actually doing the radiology, we were enabled to 
do clinical reads of you know severe illness for people who were in very remote areas in the middle of the night and you know it, it seems like a small thing but if you're in a i remember a, a case where a patient was in gadsden florida which is sort of in no man's land between pensacola and tallahassee they were in a car wreck and they they needed a radiologist in the middle of the night and through technology we were able to get a, a Vanderbilt certified radiologist to look at the scan and give the caregivers on the ground and Gadsden instructions about how to treat the patient at 3 a.m. And, you know, even five years prior, you couldn't get the scan moved from one place to another. Um, and and so everything, you know, we started on phone lines. I remember one day we we found out that a company called MCI was going to deploy what was called a frame relay. And that was going to be a big jump forward. And now, you know, everybody has a, a computer in their pocket. But in 99, that was a, a big jump. And I think when you think about the the power of distri distributed computing, uh, we worked on a project at another company for HCA where we would read uh, using NLP, we'd read the pathology reports and the radiology reports as soon as they landed at HCA to look for the evidence of cancer. And there's a case that I know HCA told the, the US Senate about, about a, a young female, I think she was 26 or 27, who'd been in a car wreck. Um, they She'd come into the emergency department to rule out broken rib cage. And in the radiology report, the radiologist noted in what's called a secondary finding, uh, a mass on the lung. And before she even got out of the emergency department, they they had her come back in. They did a, a scan of her lungs and determined that she had cancer and they were able to start treating her two days later. So, you know, absent sort of the fluky nature of a, a radiology scan for a car accident um, and technology, she might have gone weeks or months, or maybe right, even years yeah. without being diagnosed. So, you know, I'm I'm skeptical that technology can solve all the problems in healthcare, but there are some really great examples of how it can change an individual's life in a, a really positive way. Well, it's interesting because we we've we've talked specifically about technologies related to how it might change on the provider side, but obviously the same technologies have impacted consumers in a huge way in terms of the way they interact with everything around them, whether that's from media to healthcare to banking to et cetera. And so I would assume, you know, I know I've been doing some reading about Trillion. You guys are the consumer, sort of the consumer focused nature of healthcare, at least the implications or the more, the, 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 the burgeoning impact of, of consumer driven preferences and choices and how that has, that plays a big role in healthcare um, is something I understand that you guys spend some time thinking about. So I'm just interested to hear, I'm guessing that consumer behavior has changed dramatically um, as a con consequence of technology, are you guys seeing, how do you guys see that playing out? And where do you see, where, where are providers maybe doing a good job of dealing with it um, or, or using it as an advantage as opposed to it being seen as a, a problem? Because that's oftentimes the perspective on consumers. All oh, these consumers think they know everything now. They got all this information. You know, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of power in, in, in owning or controlling information. And in this case, it's, you know, 
there's very little control of information anymore in any business. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm guessing healthcare is no different. So I've talked too much. Hopefully that no, made I, some sense. So I think, I mean, I think that also goes back to the mid nineties too. I, I think the, the internet browser is the thing that in hindsight has really caused the change in the consumer behavior. And it is the access to information. I think before um, the internet was accessible by the public, people were conditioned to do whatever their doctors told them to do. And, and what their doctors told them to do was limited to what their doctor knew. And I, I think about my father and my grandfather who were physicians, who were good physicians and they were conscientious physicians, but there was only so much information that was available to them um, the entire time they practiced. And with the, the internet, you have access to information for, for providers, you have it for patients, uh, you have it for payers, you have it for life science. And I think um, certainly just the, the availability of information changes behavior. The second parallel I would say is the what healthcare is experiencing now is the fact that they are lagging behind what other consumer focused industries do in terms of data. And so Amazon's an example, Netflix is an example, Walmart's an example. True direct consumer, true direct consumer providers. True cons- people who really have a relationship with consumers understand those consumers in a way that healthcare has never had to. And it certainly fits and starts for healthcare. There are um, different parts of the healthcare industry that do a better job with that than others. Probably pharma is is the most obvious in terms of targeting uh, commercials. You know, I've I've noticed that my Sunday afternoons are filled with fewer commercials for beer and more commercials for drugs. Um, and so they've clearly dialed in my age on right. my on my cable provider. But I think there's more information about choice and providers. There's more information about cost. And as other industries have exploited their knowledge of consumer psychology, that's starting to seep in to healthcare as well. And so the way we think about it is that there are certain people who are clinically identical, but whose psychology or their their psychographic profile is wildly different there are other people who are psychologically identical and clinically different. And I think we're really just at the beginning from the healthcare perspective of A, understanding that, and then B, targeting uh, messages to consumers based upon that information. And so Amazon's been doing it a long time. The Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee have been doing it for years. Sure. And so there, there's some basic things that Procter and Gamble does that are that are new to healthcare, so we're just beginning to scratch scratch the surface of those things. And is that are you seeing? Are there particular subsets of healthcare that are more amenable to this approach, or is it a is it an aha moment really across the board? I mean, you've got third party payer issues in, in the sense that you know it's not your your healthcare provider does not they have a direct relationship with you as a consumer, but you don't pay them if you're if you're insured, right? Or you pay a part of it, but yeah, you know, and that's a that's a strange <laughs> that's a strange relationship as re- compared to say an Amazon or a Netflix or a Walmart, right? Walmart, if you're going to shop at Walmart, you either go into the store, or you go to Walmart.com, and you're the only you're the only show in town. You give them cash or a card, and that's it. And and as everyone who's had health insurance knows, healthcare is not that simple. Um, so I'm just curious: are there segments or areas where you're seeing 
more interest in this than less? I'm just curious about the perspective on that. And if so, why? Well, the immediate focus on the provider side is that the patients haven't returned to historical volumes pre-pandemic. And there is a big focus on the provider side of where did the patients go? Why haven't they come back? Where are they? Right. Um, and and are, are they coming back? And I think the the sort of aha moment that we see for, for healthcare providers is analogous to uh, grocery stores as much as the health systems wouldn't like it to be. There are certain things that, you know, I'll, I'm happy to buy at Kroger, and there are other things that I probably want to go to Publix for. And then there are a few things where I'm I'm just going to go suffer through the line to get to Whole Foods. And healthcare consumers are a lot like that. There are things they will do that are the very basics, like urgent care, where they are susceptible to things like convenience and hours and proximity. There are certain things that are very complicated where they want to go to MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so it's really um, it's really similar to the behaviors you see in other retail focused areas, but health systems are only now beginning to awaken to that. It's interesting because it's, yeah, when you say those things out loud, it seems obvious because all you have to do, all, or at least all I do is reflect on my own behavior, right? And think about myself as a healthcare consumer. Um, and I'm not sure that, that, that my providers are aware of that in, in the context of, of me, right? So, uh, and certainly they have never approached it in that way. Um, you know, I live in a, a, a city with a large academic research hospital, Wake Forest, and a large outpatient, you know, set of providers attached to it. And so that has a, you know, that has, that has mind space here, but to your point, they don't, they, I would probably, probably a generation ago, they probably literally sucked all the air out of the room uh, in this market. And that's just not the case anymore, right? Everything from urgent care to uh, online providers to, you know, there's just the stuff that's happening now. It's much more diverse in terms of the options from a consumer perspective. Well, and that's actually a good example of how technology can maybe lead you a little far down the path and, and get you stuck. Uh, as you know, I've had um, many surgeries to replace my aching joints. Um, my internist was at Vanderbilt. I had two hip replacements at HCA and two shoulder replacements at St. Thomas. And uh, I, I did all the, re the joint replacements in between primary care visits. And so when I went to see my internist at Vanderbilt, he said, have there been any changes to your health since the last time you were here? And I said, well, there are four joint replacements. And he immediately turned to his EMR and started typing in. And, and I, I had sort of a, it's a wonderful life moment and told him, you know, no, Zuzu's pedals aren't there, right? They're, I didn't have these surgeries here. Right. And so yeah. there's no record of that here. Yeah. yeah. Like everything, technology can, you know, can become a crutch. And he thought because they had the leading EMR system that it had everything he needed. Yeah. Um, when in fact it, it didn't have uh, a couple of key data points. Yeah. It's only as good as the information put into it. Right. And to your, 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 your point, uh, your pointed comment earlier about data uh, and data engineering being the problem, not, you know, not uh, machine learning or NLP or AI, not that those things are not, uh, you know, miraculous and, and improving, but 
it doesn't matter if you don't have good data. <laughs> you can you can release the greatest AI algorithm in the world uh, on uh, on a shitty data set, data set, and you're not going to get much out of it, right? I mean, <laughs> that's right. You, um, the, the, the models can go horribly wrong. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. So let's let's talk specifically about Trillion, since this is this is uh, this is where you are now, and and I know it's been an exciting ride. Again, you and I have talked about it, but. Um, having been a kind of person who's worked most of his career in jobs that no one could explain to other people what it was that I did, particularly, it was always hilarious that if, when I heard my, my friends, my children's friends ask them, Hey, Hey, what's your dad do? They never had any, I mean, even as they got older, the closest they maybe ever came was he does something in banking. Like, and I never worked for a bank in my life. So, you know, there, that was the closest and that was the closest they ever got. At one point, they said I made T-shirts because our company had T-shirts with our company's name on it. So, you know, that's that's like straight out of Silicon Valley. Very right? tangible. I mean, yeah, exactly. They could they could get that. They couldn't really get anything else. Um, but if I had to describe it to someone, I'd say it's a predictive analytics company that happens to be in the healthcare space. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think uh, it is. And you know, we've spent the last five years getting really good at the market analytics and to your point, getting really good at the data that's in the database. Uh, the team we have has produced amazing models in different industries, but healthcare data is really messy and and A, to, to get it where it's normalized and then B, to be able to process it at scale has taken three really hard years of work to be able to do that where the models can be informative. And so we we focused on getting the foundation right uh, so that we could start doing the predictions. You know, healthcare is the is a four trillion dollar industry. It's the largest economic engine in the world, except for the Chinese and Japanese economies. So the US healthcare industry is bigger than the entire GDP of Germany, for example. And We've really focused on predictions because between the regulatory environment and the cost environment, the capital allocation is a really important component to get right. The decisions that people are making are $50 million and $500 million and $2 billion decisions. And we're focused on predictions that allow people to, to make the best capital allocation decisions they can. And are those, cap, those CapEx decisions around facilities, um, you know, so kind of PP&E kinds of decisions, um, investments in software. What are the nature of those? This is a question more about healthcare than it is about Trillium, but, and so I'm showing my ignorance, but just curious, what, what, are, what are those CapEx, what, what does that look like in uh, kind of in a range? I mean, obviously it's all over the place, but in, 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 a, in sort of a general range. No, no that, that's right. A lot of it is around um, new facilities. A lot of it is around M&A. Um, getting into new markets. Uh, a lot of it those around the, the basics of blocking and tackling. If you're a large pharma company or a large medical device company, you want your sales reps in the markets where the clinical pathology will arise. And we see time and time again, where people have their, you know, if you think about their assets, whether they're salespeople or physician liaisons or, or whatever it is, they have their assets misallocated to where the market is. So our real focus is where's the growth by service line? What is it that you're trying to sell or deliver? And, and do you have 
are you investing in the right markets with the right resources? And so in, in that context, as I think about Trilliant, um, I had a question that it's maybe kind of a dumb question now that I, now that we've had this conversation or gotten to this point, but does mobility or the idea of, of mobile computing or mobile access to data, is that an important part of the value prop at this point? Or is this more uh, at the business decision level? So it's, it's, it's nice, but it's not critical yet. And maybe there's a downstream, maybe there's something downstream around that aspect. No, mobile is definitely important. I mean, if you think about the healthcare industry, nothing really happens in the U.S. healthcare industry that doesn't involve a provider. So a, a provider, usually a doctor, makes a recommendation or writes a prescription or writes an order or makes a referral. And, and so if you're going to influence those decisions, you have to be on the ground talking to the physicians. And we have in our database, 2.6 million providers. And our theory is everybody cares about at least one of those providers. And in fact, most people care about thousands of them. And so being able to be face-to-face -face with a provider with relevant information to try to influence the conversation is critically important. Gotcha. Okay. Um, obviously security and healthcare go hand in hand, right? Um, I mean, protecting protection of information is not just a uh, you know, it's not just a, a an ethical proposition; it's a legal one, right? Um, PHI is, uh, you know, is is obviously a, a heavily regulated in terms of how in information and particularly critical or or private information is handled. Um, how do you guys think about? I mean, this is obviously you've been doing this your whole career, so it's the water you swim in. But as you you know, looking at it, as we've moved into this more, um, you know, distributed computing, large data sets. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've got a bunch of unstructured data. You're getting, you're, you're hoovering up data from lots of different places and then trying to put some structure around that to be able to, to run models against. How has the security aspect, how do you think about that as the CEO? How much of your time do you spend thinking about that aspect? Well, less than I used to. And I think that's another big development in technology is, you know, I'm going to put it under the heading of cryptography. Um, but in the past, I'd say past eight years, hashing the data has become the way that almost everybody m works with the data. So a company called Datavant, which is based in San Francisco, started by a guy uh, named Travis May, who started a company called LiveRamp that he sold to Axiom. And Travis bought a little company that was hashing the data so that it's de-identified and then creating a network of people around that data at this point, we've moved, when I started here, we probably handled probably 95% of the data was identified. And so therefore we were worried about PHI and, right. and all the security. Uh, at this point, it's the reverse. Probably 95% of the data that's in-house is de-identified. It's hashed and tokenized. And, you know, we're, the way we're doing it, there are actually two or three steps in the tokenization process. There's one tokenization process and then there's some manipulation and then there's another tokenization process. And so, you know, it would be um, extraordinarily difficult for someone to even crack the hash. And if they did, there wouldn't be any context for it. So we, we spend a lot less time worried about that than we used to. Uh, but again, that's because of you know, great advances in computing power over the past 15, 20 years. Right. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, 
the beauty of of cranking on problems uh, over time can yield great results, right? And and the the, the management of data and the security of the data uh, is something that we've we've seen real um, real advances in, and that's been beneficial to everybody, particularly in space like healthcare, where I mean the stakes are are really high. The flip side of that is the internet itself is an open protocol, right? By design. So it's not meant to be secure. It doesn't mean you can't drop security on top of it, around it. You can do things, um, to, to make connectivity, um, less open, but you can't make it closed, uh, in that sense. And so, you know, in terms of access to your data and managing, um, the sort of the ecosystem itself, have you guys been down? Have you guys been, struggling with or or thinking about or been challenged with things like looking at zero trust protocols or things like that to make sure you know you want obviously uh ransomware attacks are terrible for everyone but particularly in a space like yours right where if there's data exfiltration or uh, an ax you know the limit limited access to information because of an uh, of a penetration or a you know a breach that's a real problem just curious to know how you think about that as a ceo well, what I look at internally is the constant friction between the cybersecurity team who has promoted a, a zero trust philosophy and the engineers who are trying to stretch the math as, as much as they can. And there's a constant tension between sure. this open source thing or that open source thing or this approach to processing data or... Um, you know, developing new algorithms versus the the cyber team that's saying, okay, but we, you know, we have to limit access to this, and we haven't vetted that one. And I'm I don't know enough about the details to to really be the the judge between them. Where I get concerned is if it looks like there's not a healthy tension. And so my focus is really on a what do I see between the teams and you know you don't want them to become enemies but you do need them to be sort of pushing each other and then the second thing is relying on the the external protocol so um you know we're we're now going down the path of uh nist um you know we've done SOC 2 now we're going down NIST. that's a big step up yeah. and it's really just trying to allocate resources appropriately to to what we should do versus what the real risks are um, and again, because of the the abundance of hashing and tokenization that goes on in our workflow, we think that we're at at lower risk of those sorts of things than than some other industries, uh, you know, like banking. Right. I mean, do you have to? Are you guys dealing with PCI compliance, or do you y'all don't have to deal with that? I'm guessing because you don't do payments, right? We. One of the things about having a lot of jobs is that along the way you learn things that you don't want to do again. And that's one of them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, me and you both. <laughs> we did that 10 years ago and said, nope, we're not doing that one this time. Yeah. Me and you both. I've been there and, and got the t-shirt uh, and, and don't want another one. Um, I understand why the, uh, the, uh, the, the restrictions and the, and the, the hoops are there, but the credit card space and the payment space is. Yep. Life's too short for this kid. Yeah. Me and you both. All right. Well, I mean, wrap it up or kind of, kind of bring us to bring us home. Um, you, know, you can't really talk about healthcare without talking about the government. I mean, despite the, um, maybe the misperception that most Americans have, or at least some Americans that we have this amazing free market, uh, healthcare system, 
it's about half and half, right? It's about half government, half private. If you look at the, if you look at the, the spend. So I'd say we're 50, 50, right. And that, and that, and that government 50 is, is a heavy, uh, in the mix. And, um, as you, you know, again, you've been working in the space a long time. So you've watched, uh, you've watched the government. And in this case, the government, I mean, we could talk about the regulars, but I'm talking probably more about the the government providers, right? The Medicare and the Medicaid side of the house, the, 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 the funding side of it. Um, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the government is behind from a technology perspective relative to the private sector. And, you know, I'm inclined to think that on average, that's true. I don't know that that's true universally. In fact, I'm sure it's not true universally. I'm sure there are examples where that's not the case. But when you, when you look at, at what, what you see from, as you think about the government and their sort of technology posture as it relates to being able to facilitate what they do, you know, where do you see them doing a good job and where are these same forces sort of at work in a way that's helping them and hurting them in the sense of them being able to take advantage of it? Well, I think the first thing is if you, I think about CMS as in really two roles. One is as a, a funder of healthcare and two as a processor of claims. And, you know, CMS is really good at processing claims. If you have your Medicare number and you submit your bill when you're supposed to, it is very predictable that Medicare will reimburse you. I mean, Medicare often reimburses faster than uh, the commercial plans like United. Um, and so I, I think at that, they do really well. And my assumption is that is has maybe not always been the case or that they've invested heavily in technology to facilitate that. They have and, and in standardization. And so, um, you know, they do that through uh, third parties sometimes through fiscal intermediaries. But, you know, the one thing the U.S. government can do is enforce a structure on anything and they've enforced a structure on payment. And if you if you go back to the the source of our material, it is uh, claims data. And as part of, I think it was part of uh, what brought HIPAA along in 96. In 96, it wasn't so much about privacy and security as it was about an electronic transaction set. And so there are two large transaction sets in healthcare. The clinical side is HL7 and the payment side is X12. And X12 is a framework for um, specific messages that go back and forth um, between providers and payers. And the the government's done a good job of enforcing that framework. Um, and they don't really have an incentive to sit on the money, so they don't. Sometimes. Right. No float. There's no real float benefit from them. The insurance companies do understand that. Correct. And <laughs> yes, uh, they do. I think the... I think the challenge for America, and it, it's not as much CMS as it is um, sort of where America is in terms of its thinking about this as compared to Britain. So uh, you know, and, and maybe some of your, your audience does, that the National Health Service is a treasured institution in England. And part of that is because they spent the 20s and the 30s and the early 40s thinking about what they wanted. And the National Health Service was the output of literally decades of conversations about what it meant to be British. And, and healthcare was important and it was established as a basically universal right. And because they decided it was important, they then set up the funding mechanisms. Now, the, the execution of some of the policy is not as um, 
efficient as we would think in America, and that manifests in long waiting times and sure. understaffing and that sort of thing. But from a payment perspective, the NHS is very thoughtful. I think the the key difference in America is we've never had that conversation. There's There are a lot of things that come out of Washington about what people want, but there's never been a national conversation for you know two hours, much less 20 years, about what we as Americans think. And I think it's that where the government, you know, it's not that the government falls short, it's that the government can't really be effective because we don't really all agree on what we're doing. And the the reality is that each of us as individuals is basically potential market share for all of the actors in the system. And it just, as we age, who who's interested in us from a market share perspective changes over time. Um, I think there there's a lot of positive energy uh, around how we could be more of a health system instead of a healthcare system, but absent the, you know, not even a hundred percent agreement, but a consensus with America as a country. I, I don't know how we ever get there, and you know the the last piece of that is that that manifests in uh, that that lack of coordination is what's really impacting state budgets. And so I believe now in every state, the state, the proportion of state budget allocated to Medicaid is at least 20%. I know there are a couple of states where it's over 40%. And the real challenge for us is that um, spending on Medicaid is crowding, crowding out all of the other things at sure. the state level, whether that's schools or roads or, or anything else. And, you know, you've got the, the other thing is I think a lot of people tend to think that state state governments are the, you know, the federal government on a small scale and they are not. That's true. They can, they can float bonds, but lots of states have balanced budget amendments. Um, there are restrictions. Uh, there are much more, there are much tighter restrictions in place at the state level than there are at the federal level in terms of dealing with, you know, uh, I'll call them entitlement programs, but, but government spending programs where costs, I mean, you know, healthcare costs have been twice the rate of inflation or, uh, maybe not as much as uh, as education expenses, but but close to it, right? The right. Two biggest, they're, they're in lockstep. The two fastest growing uh, components of spend um, in the economy, and certainly in the from a government perspective. So you know, those are you're, you're right. You're 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 dealing with some immovable objects there that are 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 problematic uh, and and lead to crowding out. No no question about it. Which leads to a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, of frustration at the uh, at the individual you know, uh, citizen level. And yet these forces are still there. Right. And, and they're, they're very difficult to deal with. Um, we didn't talk any, any about it. And so I won't, you and I could, this would be something for us to talk about next time we're together, but cause you mentioned it, I, I was reading something on the blog, on your blog, I think talking about obviously the provision of, of healthcare through uh, workplace, through the workplace, as opposed to, you know, as individuals, the way you might buy car insurance or homeowners insurance is a, is a very interesting strange um political fact of american uh, american life um that happened you know sort of as an accident and yet here we are um that to your point around something that was never meant to be what it is that has taken on a, a life of its own um and is has all kinds of incredible distortions uh, distortionary effects um 
at one point, if I remember correctly, you were involved in something having to do with employers and healthcare. Is that correct? Was one of your companies involved with employers? Well, one the the original the founding company of Trillion was focused on uh, reaching out to employers and and trying to create a connectivity between the employers and the hospitals. Was that looking at like self insured employers, or was it was it more just a way of trying to manage premium growth? both and 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 really trying to get to the the health trying to do the preventative health care um, to keep people from becoming so sick that they were you know it, it was a long recovery and it was also much more costly than it would have been if they right. just had preventative care right right yeah that's another one that's um i mean it's an interesting it's definitely a, a tangled web we've woven uh to to get to here um and it's interesting uh, you know the nhs is a is instructive in that sense, but it was probably a political moment in time too that uh, hard to capture or or replicate uh, in in other contexts for sure. Well, it, it's interesting that the the NHS approach came right out of World War II, and and I th- I think what you're referencing is the employer sponsored tax deduction, which came out of with wage freezes, right? It was they they allowed it they allowed you to do to do uh, you know to do uh, fringe benefits. Um, on a tax-free basis. Right. It, it's funny to think that both countries did something after World War II, one of which was very intentional that persists today, one of which was completely unintentional and is the, the thing that confounds the healthcare system the most. Correct. Yes. Leads to a lot of this sort of, I mean, anyway, it, yeah, we, like I said, we could go down that rabbit hole. It would be fun, but it's not for this podcast. All right. Final question. Um, obviously, you know, Trillion's in a good place. You guys have had good success and are continuing to grow, but still early stage or maybe medium stage at this point. Um, when you think about the current state of data analytics in healthcare, how optimistic are you about its broader impact, kind of medium to long term? Not just in tri- not just in the case of Trillion, but more broadly, right? I mean, where where do you see that? Are you seeing indications that this is that we're seeing a groundswell, whereas in ten years we're going to look back and and be amazed? at what we've what we've seen in terms of its impact. I'm I'm optimistic about what can happen. I'm not sure that we're focused on the right things from a policy perspective. So there's a, a huge push for interoperability. When you peel that back, what it really means is having health system A share their EMR records with health system B. The challenge with that is 50% of the revenue does not happen in a hospital and actually 88% of the touches don't happen in a hospital. And so I don't know that interoperability is going to get us home. But I think the distributed computing and processing information at scale and starting to use um, algorithms to, to help people forecast. One of the things about healthcare is um, budgeting and strategic planning is a once a year exercise. And, you know, what I tell our board is, the second I gave you the budget, it was wrong. I just don't know where. Right. Um, healthcare does not do dynamic um, modeling of changes in the data. I think that with distributed computing, you can start to see people make plans before the beginning of their fiscal year, but then modify them on the fly based upon changes in the underlying data. That obviously would have been a tremendous help in the disruption of the pandemic. Um, you know, we're not quite the area from a technology perspective, but I, I think those sorts of things in terms of, again, things the rest of the economy does, 
what what does your future demand do to affect your supply chain or your staffing or those sorts right. of things? We don't do that in healthcare, but I think we can in the next five to ten years. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, I always like to wrap up with something. I call it personal. It's not personal questions, but it's 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 not specific. You know, related. you know all. Yeah, I already. I don't have any personal questions. You already know all the. Already know the answers. So, um, but uh, tell us something that you've watched or read lately that uh, you you think's worth sharing for others to consider. Well, I'm in the middle of Walter Isaacson's biography of Benjamin Franklin, and I had not realized quite how uh, tortured he was between his loyalty to the crown and his loyalty to America. And it's it's interesting watching uh, a real statesman wrestle with those sorts of things as I think about the, the state of the world right now and how many difficult problems we have. Um, I think we might all benefit from uh, wrestling with those things like Ben Franklin did instead of just declaring. So. Uh, I'm I'm going to keep reading that and see what else I can learn from it. Well, I've never read anything of his that isn't fantastic. Uh, he may be the best. I mean, there's we got two or three really good biographers alive right now, but he's he's certainly one of he's in the pantheon. I think that's I think that's clear. All right, last question. Um, you're old, and so am I. So I'm going to ask you to go back in time a little. Um, tell us about your first technology memory as a child. Uh, it can't be TV or the phone. My first technology memory is, you remember the, was it the Mattel or the football game with the two buttons? Yeah, Mattel and then Coleco. Yep. Or maybe it was Mattel that was Coleco that I think Mattel re-released because they were the bigger company, maybe. The the little flashing lights going up and down the field. Yes. That's it. It was so awesome. And you could take it with you. It was so, I mean, it was the game changer. Like it really was. Handheld computer. And it was six lights. Yep. Yeah. And it was, it seemed like magic. Yes. It, it seemed like magic, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah. No, I, I've seen I've, my, my son who is the same age as your son has seen videos of that. Like, and he, he kind of gets it, but not really like he, he just can't, you can't undo what you've, what you've always known. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things. So it's uh so yeah, that's a, that's a good memory for me too, for sure. For sure. Well, Hal, it's always good to talk to you. Um, I'll see you soon, I'm sure. And thanks thanks for uh, coming on Cut the Shit. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at cuttheshitpod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day.